Hey everybody, welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige movie review. This time we're doing a 20-year retrospective on Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. Yep, it came out around this week uh, in 2023. It is written and directed by Quentin. Uh, it stars Uma Thurman, who worked with Quentin on Pulp Fiction. She's also in Batman and Robin, Gattaca, Mad Dog and Glory, Nymphomaniac. Lucy Liu from Ally McBeal, Charlie's Angels recently from Elementary, Vivica A. Fox from Independence Day and Set It Off, Michael Madsen was Reservoir Dogs, Hateful Eight, also Thelma and Louise, Donnie Brasco, Daryl Hannah, Splash, Blade Runner, Roxanne, Steel Magnolias, David Carradine, famous for the Kung Fu series, just walking the earth, Sonny mm. Chiba, mm -hmm. legendary martial arts film star, also appeared in Tokyo Drift. I didn't even know that. Uh, that had to come up during our recent Groundhog's Day deal. Uh, also, also starring Gordon Liu, another legendary kung fu film star. He'll also play the character of Pai Mei in Volume 2, and we talk about it uh, in early 2024. You got Julia Dreyfus from Inglorious Bastards, uh, Chiaki Kuriyama. Uh, did not notice she was in Battle Royale. Uh, crazy cast, crazy movie. This is widely thought of as Quentin Tarantino at his Quentin Tarantiniest. Jim, what's your relationship with Kill Bill, and what did you think watching this twenty years later? Um, my relationship with Kill Bill is, I saw it twenty years ago. I haven't seen it since. Uh, I really, yeah, yeah. Well, I. So I remember not being as impressed by this movie as everybody else was. Um, and I still feel the same today after watching it for the second time 20 years later. I think this movie is about 50% awesome and good. It's 100% Tarantino, but fifty the other 50% is like dialogue that Sam Jackson couldn't pull off himself uh, and, and Tarantino being a foot perv. Like that, that's like... <laughs> And I know that's half well, of Tarantino's catalog anyway, but like the first half of this movie, I don't actually like. The second half of this movie, I think, is amazing. Everything, everything from when she gets to Okinawa to the end of this movie is incredible. Okay, that's not a bad take. I don't think, um, uh, or at least I, I can I can see where you're going with that. Um, I just recently. Because this was like the second Tarantino film I'd ever seen. I saw Pulp, Pulp Fiction. Um, I saw, I, I've talked about this before. I saw a heavily edited for TV version of Pulp Fiction. And that was the Pulp Fiction <laughs> that I that I thought I knew. Um, uh -huh. And then I went in this movie to see, you know, and I was reasonably excited. Because like I thought Pulp Fiction was a, was a hell of a movie. Went in to see this movie and I was really blown away. I thought this movie was just fucking awesome. I had, this was very early on in my rated R movie career. And I just, just like, these are things I'd like, you know, you, they talk about like how referential and how this is just like a pastiche of different black exploitation and kung fu movie tropes and spaghetti western stuff, especially in mm -hmm. volume two. But this was just me like getting this all raw unfiltered all uncut awesome for the first time and i thought it was great I, I i don't know i've seen this movie probably 10 times um i just completed a complete tarantino rewatch this last winter 
And when I did, I kind of realized that Kill Bill, I still, I still recognize all those things. I still, there's, there's, I agree with you. Like uh, my, I think my favorite sequence in the entire both volumes might be the man from Okinawa, or you know the the yeah. sword, the Hanzo Hatori line. Mm-hmm. From that point, the, the, this is a, this is a near perfect film. Um, I have a little bit of like, uh, just just so gratuitous. Um, some of the stuff is at the beginning. Yeah, uh, but it's like it's gratuitous throughout the whole film. Like this is oh, this sure. is. Quentin Tarantino grind housing it up and then he's going to try to art house it in volume two uh, mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but I, I, I still enjoy it. I still it's, it's it's like I definitely see, you know, the aspects that are, you know, haven't aged as well or things that it got lauded for in terms of like, uh, like people are talking about this, like it's a great feminist movie when it was released. Um, like, mm-hmm. in fact, reading Roger Ebert's review, it gives it a four stars. Great movie. Um in fact, I, I I I thought it was wild. Roger Ebert's review talked about how like this film was kind of like emasculating in terms of action hero because it stars a, a, a female protagonist. What does uh, that What does that do to the male action hero exactly? I, I I don't know. I got a lot of thoughts on that aspect of it that we'll probably get to later in the film. But okay. yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that. Um, the movie held up better than I was anticipating. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious to see how we feel about it when we get to volume two. Uh, I did a quick poll last night. I was curious on Twitter and I asked our audience, you know, generally speaking, when it comes to volume one versus volume two, volume one is better, volume two, two is better, equally good or equally bad. 39.5% Pete said volume one is the best. Uh, or better volume two is at 20.1 20.7% equally good is at 32.8 and equally bad is at 7% so <laughs> okay. that is an interesting result of volume one is the clear favorite um, and I, I I'm, I'm I, I don't know I don't I don't want to reveal which one is mine until we get to volume two which we're planning on doing in February on its 20th anniversary so mm-hmm. uh what do you think about the actual filmmaking though uh i think the actual filmmaking is pretty excellent again i I, look i have some caveats here because i don't like that first half but it's nothing really to do with the filmmaking it's more the writing um and just the style of it but like the filmmaking itself is impressive uh i'm not a guy who likes a lot of the wire foo stuff that happens in movies uh you know from the region from the era mm-hmm. but this stuff I, I don't know it's it struck me as like I, I the fact that it's an homage i think helps and it's not trying to do something uh kind of original here it's just saying hey i love these these movies and i'm like okay that's cool that you love these movies and there's some really cool stuff in here. And and most of all, I think what's helped is they're having a ton of fun. And it, this movie is not trying to impress you like a crouching tiger, hidden dragon. It's not trying to do something spiritual or whatever. It's just it's just having fun. And mm-hmm. I think that's why it, it comes off as like, OK, I can I can follow you on that journey here. Because, uh, man, that, the last half of this movie from a filmmaking perspective is way up there for me. 
Yeah. Um, it's very slick. It's very stylish. Um, everyone talks about how, like, in the House of the Blue Leaves scenes, they go to black and white to avoid the censors. I don't... I never... I've never been able to substantiate any actual quote that says that the MPAA said, you got to go and do this. I actually think that Quentin just knew he was serving a hell of a lot of vanilla ice cream and that right as an audience might get bored with that flavor, he switches it up. He switches it to the black and white for aesthetics. He switches it to the like what you got on your background, the blue uh, you know, the blue grid fight. He takes it out to the snow and, and just takes it down to 1v1. I, I think it's intention- those are intentional because as you find yourself as an audience getting impatient with action, because it's easy to do, he kind of shifts it to a different gear. So you're like, oh, it's a, you, you don't get overstimulated by any one thing. And uh, just in terms of like the sound, um, how influential uh, Quentin Tarantino is from a soundtrack perspective, we, we were talking before the uh, stream about the uh, battle without honor or humanity the 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 infamous walk-in music the the crazy 88 had and how you've seen that and uh the five six seven eights woohoo like how many fucking commercials has that been in like um and i i think that also like from an action film perspective you definitely see quentin tarantino's fingerprints like his he, he made a he made a visual style guide for action filmmakers for the next decade uh, mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have to laboriously see all of the kung fu films and grindhouse films and black exploitation films. Like Quentin Tarantino gave you that that blueprint, that style. Um, yeah, between and this and the Matrix, it's like that. That is that defined. Act, that was action. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Down to even them share, and I think it's fascinating. They both shared the choreographer, uh, Yu Wu Pang, uh, Ping. Uh, who did the wire foo for Matrix, which stretched the bounds of what you could actually do. And I think this much more um, grounded, you know? Yeah. Like, I'd almost believe that uh, Uma Thurman, or at least her, her stunt double, uh, could run up that, that that railing. You know, that like uh-huh. that that's looked really convincing. Uh, I, I, I'm... And he- I'm so glad you brought up that black and white scene because I really, really want to talk about that. And you're like the perfect person to talk about it with. Oh, uh, really? As somebody who's seen the blurkled, fucked up version of Pulp Fiction and can remember what that mm. was like, I, I want you to, I want you to confirm my recollection of the '80s and '90s on the big screen and the small screen because I have seen claims that this was done, like, like you said. For MPAA reasons, they said, hey, we, uh, you know, we can't be showing all of this gore. You need to do something to tone it down. And so he made a black and white to take out some of that blood effect. And I've seen it claimed and I refute I, I would refute this to the day I die. I've seen it claimed that in the 80s and 90s, that was common practice on television and movies to black and white particularly violent action scenes or gory action scenes. I cannot tell you once ever seeing something like that done. I can't, I mean, I can't think of a single time, but I'm also wasn't just watching rated R movies in the eighties and, uh, and, and nineties. Although I have gone back well, and but you seen watch a lot television, of, right? I watch a lot of television. I've watched a lot of action films in retrospect. I have, I cannot think of a single film. I think that Alfred Hitchcock shot psycho in black and white specifically to 
avoid censorship and like that's such a legendary thing that he did that it's like it's uh-huh. it's going back and because there's no fucking way especially at the point in which this film shifts to black and white they've already spilled hundreds of gallons of blood every type of decapitation oh, yeah. that you can think of has been i i just i i can't i don't know what they did that's more extreme than what they did at this point in the fight um but like I've never, I'm mm. actually I was just always, um, always accepted. Oh, and critically, oh yeah, Tintin Tarantino has to switch to black and white and House of the Blue it leaves because obviously blah blah blah. And I was watching, I'm like, in my memory, my thought is like she whips off Sophie's arm, and then it goes to black and white because you know. But like, no, there's like the, five the minutes of pluck. fight. The eye pluck is where it happens, yeah. and I just, I don't know. Maybe it happened. But I cannot find anything that actually says, other than Quentin Tarantino, uh, that actually says that, yeah, he had to actually make those cuts. uh, Or he had to turn it into black or white. Um, Although, I guess the strongest evidence is that in his whole bloody affair, the super secret, top secret cut that he hoards to himself, uh, the whole thing is seen in color. Um, So if it was done for stylistic reasons, he'd... From what I've heard, the version released in Japan was all in color. Interesting. Yeah, that can't be an accident, right? That'd have to be. So maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe it actually it just. I mean, that's the other thing is like now I'm talking myself into it because the American censorship, like what they deem is something that can be like unrated versus rated R, I think is ridiculous. You know. Um, oh yeah, like, totally. Like, okay, you can cut, we're counting, 23 arms and legs off, but the second mm-hmm. you pluck an eye, you better flip it to black and white, or we're going to start demanding deep cuts. Like, I just... I can buy I that did, it's you know, an MPAA uh, They are pretty fucking preemptive stupid. on his part. Um, That's what it feels like to me. It was preemptive, which probably means it was also at least partially stylistic, right? Sure. He's like, what What can I do to appease them that would also appease me? Uh, that, that, yeah. that makes me feel good about making a cut to my own movie for to, to make a compromise here. Um, yeah. And, but the thing that I don't, that I absolutely do not believe is that this was common practice. I, I would not, I've never seen this done on television or film in the 80s, 80s and 90s. I think this was yeah. something that was... Yeah, it felt more like an idea that came out of his head that said, hey, th- this can be done for this reason. Let's go ahead and do it um, to get a, a lower rating here. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. And now, back with more Bald Move. I want to talk about, I guess, the acting Um and Uma Thurman in in this role, you know, this is her, this is her claim to badass fame right here. Like this is totally. this is this this will get you uh, like a point five on a badass scale just, just from sheer weight, just from i just the iconography alone, uh, the yeah. icon status. Uh, Beatrix Kiddo is an iconic badass. Uh, yeah, Beatrix is an absolute absolute iconic badass. And I think because that's what I was going back, it's like is. Was the novelty of seeing like a skinny blonde woman in Hollywood kicking ass carrying a lot of this film? And it carries a little bit, but I also think that there is something gritty about her performance where it's like it's some Bruce Willisy 
like where she gets like kind of yeah. pounded and bloodied and but she just keeps going she just won't fucking die like like kill mm-hmm. bill or bill himself says like you beat the shit out of her put a bullet through her skull and her heart just refused to stop beating because it's just animated by revenge and i think mm-hmm. it works like she looks really good doing all the shit that she does in this movie Pull, she pulls it off yeah i i agree i think you could put any other action star you can think of in this movie and it would work just as well because the action is amazing right um and, and the the story is one of just willpower it's 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 not necessarily I, I didn't really read it as like hatred of these people i read it more as love for her child it, it was the revenge motivation it it was almost coming from a place of positivity instead of negativity in a weird way and maybe that's maybe i'm reading too much of like the kill bill part two of volume two into this one but mm-hmm. uh honestly i don't remember a ton of that movie but mm. yeah i i definitely like felt it, it wasn't seeing you know this blonde haired sort of thin lanky woman kicking ass that made this movie for me it was the action itself it was the thing she was doing and she has she to be was. convincing in the sword play and I, I know zoe bell her her stunt her double did a lot of you know anytime you're seeing her from the back or at a probably longer 50 foot re- remove it's it's not uma it's zoe but hmm. even then it's like you said like yeah i i agree it's like i i didn't watch this because it's skinny skinny woman you know doing kung fu it's just it, it, it's not just a novelty it's like that the, the action stands up to it you know yeah, it doesn't totally. look ridiculous um, and she's just got so many. It's, it's not just that the like, um, because Uma Thurman was. I, I I read an interview with her where she's like, you know, you know, tw- you know. I think this was 15 years ago. They're asking, you know, what what, what does Kill Bill mean to women? You know, because everybody talks about uh, its attitude and its violence and all that. And she says that the one thing that women come up and tell her about, you know, being fans of it is like, you know, some of these women who are going through terrible situations with the bosses, boyfriends, husbands, fathers. Um, there's they get this survivor energy from the idea of the bride not ever ever stopping and quitting, and I could see that being mm-hmm. somewhat of an inspire. Like you know, this is like a huge inspiration for just like no matter how much pain and abuse and whatever you go through, uh, to keep on going. But I also like you know when we, <laughs> I also wonder if like um, it, it's amusing to think about this movie in terms of like what if it were a male protagonist, uh. You know, like, like, it, it, can, can you imagine a movie where I'm even trying to think of how you could do it? Because you could to, to, to do to put a male in this bride's predicament, you'd have to put him in a coma for five years, um, literally emasculate them, remove their because like her lady parts no longer work. They established that. Make sure you establish this. This protagonist has been uh, his body has been sold to be raped by any passing through trucker with a disgusting jar of uh, Vaseline. Uh, and, and, and and you would have to have murdered his, uh, bra- his, his bride and their unborn child on the day of his wedding. But even then you can't, like, you can't kill the baby that's inside of them, right? Like, mm-hmm. th- I've never seen a male protagonist put through this much violation. Usually they just kill the wife or daughter. And he gets a yeah, gritty yeah. look in his eye. Like I, the insane shit that they put Beatrix Kiddo through is wild at the beginning of this movie. It, it, so I've got the perfect example. It's Theon Greyjoy. 
that's the, George Martin did it right. Um, Holy shit! You are a hundred percent right. Yeah, yeah. He's he, he did. Yeah, yeah. And look what it did to him, right? But he did, he just didn't have the willpower to kind of fight through that. I mean, well, he didn't start as a badass. It, like if you yeah, like fair. if he, if if uh, if uh, um, shit uh, Greyjoy or not, not Greyjoy uh, Bolton. Ramsey, if Ramsey yeah. Bolton had tried that shit with like Jack and Hagar, <laughs> well, we might we we might have gotten a male bride situation. But uh-huh, it totally. is like, it's, yeah, it's just like it's it's uh, that the Quintantine just uniquely put her through the the ringer. But it's it's not just the like I said, it's not just the action scenes. Like I think one of the the, the greatest things that Uma Thurman's done on screen is her acting of like coming to after. You know, yeah. last thing she remembers yeah. is Bill blowing her, shooting her in the face, and like her her progressive realizations of the things that have happened to her, like tapping. I was like, oh my god, I've got a steel plate in my skull. Oh my god, I've lost. I that's just amazing work that she does right right up the front of the movie. Yeah, four years later, that the emotional impact being frozen in that moment when it happened and and just hitting all at once. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, there's some acting that I. Look, I sympathetically, I'm sympathetic to it, but I don't like it. And it's the stuff in the uh, Vivica Fox uh, intro stuff. Chapter one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, chapter one, which is two, right? Uh, I don't think that Sam Jackson himself could pull off this dialogue. And they don't nail it. They don't nail it. The dialogue is so stilted and so stylized in a in you know the Tarantino way, right? Like, I, I could see Sam Jackson giving it a go, but it might still come off as stilted because it's so fucking weird and bad. What are you talking? Okay, I I I don't understand this criticism. I don't. I think that scene's fine. Like, I I can't tell you. I can't quote any specifics. But if you go watch that scene and just look at the dialogue, it's impossible to say that dialogue without coming across as. Oh, this is something somebody wrote and definitely like it's George Lucas stuff. Like it was not meant to be mm. said. Huh. I guess yeah, I I I am not I I never thought that. I've never thought that like geez, Emma huh. Thurman wow. seems like a a real idiot pulling off these lines or Vivica Fox is just posing posing with this dialogue. She's uh, trying, but it's just it's I don't know, maybe you need Tarantino in a bathrobe to pull this I mean, dialogue off i'm I, not sure but it's are, you're literally saying the dialogue because like uh-huh. what it comes off to me is it comes off as a like mean co-worker dialogue uh like archer like they, they're talking to each other like the way that uh pam and uh, lana talk to each other in archer it's just like really bitchy petty uh oh, for gossipy, sure. you know like yeah and it's a it's but it's also a life and death situation like they're calling each other mm-hmm. you know the the you know the, you're calling each other bitch and all this other stuff but they're also trying to kill each other this isn't just talk like uh-huh. but I, that's, that's not the problem I have. it's it's not it's it's not the tone of it it's the well it is partially the tone of it but that's not the part that i care about it's just yeah the phrasing the phrasing is really awkward all right, uh, Dial. Is there anything else you wanted to say in generalities before we get to specific scenes? I feel like we've already gotten the specific scenes, but uh... yeah, I just wanted to bring up that specific scene for the acting. But let's uh, let's talk about the movie specifically. Yeah, 
yeah if you don't know uh kill bill this is the first volume uh is a movie about a woman played by uma thurman who was in a five-person assassin squad led by a name named bill she tried to get out of this organization start a new life uh Apparently, Bill didn't like that, and they visited her on her wedding day to murder her and her unborn child. And we see four years later, she wakes up, and fueled by an unquenchable need for revenge, she makes a list. She checks it twice, and she goes on a globetrotting adventure all around the world to kill all five members of the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad, except for herself. Presumably, she's going to not kill all five. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I imagine most people have seen this or they've got definitely an opinion about whether they're going to see this or not. Um, if you are, I guess, I, I know there's probably a lot of, uh, of, of the younger people listening to this that might have gotten to some latter day. This is, I guess, you'd have to call this early Quentin Tarantino. Now, you know? yeah, totally. It's uh, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and and Pam Bra- or uh, Pam Greer. Jackie Brown? No, it would, Jackie Brown. Thank, I said Pam Brown, Jesus. Jackie Brown. And then, yeah, so I guess this is, you, you consider this first half Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, the crazy thing is, this movie felt like like a return of Tarantino, right? Because like, Pulp Fiction had come out in 94, and then like Jackie mm-hmm. Brown came out in 95 or whatever, mm-hmm. I think. And it had been, or maybe 97, it had been a long time since Quentin Tarantino had done a movie. People were like, oh shit, he's back. He's doing another one. And it it was was a big deal. And now it's like, oh, this is early Tarantino. (laughs) He's done a lot since then. Yeah, and the fact that it's like, it's reputation at the time, you know, because there's, you, you get some of them crazy gears in like Reservoir Dogs and... Pulp Fiction, but if anything, like mm-hmm. it seems like Quentin Tarantino is going a little bit more grounded, you know, uh, still perfecting the dialogue. And this is just like, I guess, the movie that he, you know, he really wanted to make. But it, it was it was exciting at the time because he got this. Oh, it's going to be Return of Uma Thurman. It's going to be this wild martial arts, you know, extravaganza. It's like the length mm-hmm. of um, and and you know, I was like big into following movies. I was really passionate about movies and. Like all the movie sites were following, like the fact that this thing went, you know, it's kind of funny now that like, oh my god, this thing was fifteen million dollars over budget and like three weeks over schedule. Stop the fucking presses. Uh, this film uh, cost fifty five million dollars to make, and it seems like a steal uh, by modern standards. But like, just like you know, Quentin Tarantino's doing his like, you know, magnum opus, um, and then like I said, going into the theater and actually seeing it, just being blown away. It's uh. It's funny because like, it is you want I want I, it is the most Quentin Tarantino film I think he's ever made, um, and there's elements of this in like every other film he's ever made. Yeah, but yeah. this has got like where it's like he doesn't worry about telling. It's like the story is not super interesting. It's no. like just a it's just a background setting to make you invested in making and and wanting her to kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Um. So you mentioned um, that you don't like the whole uh, Vivica A. Fox because I actually wrote down a couple things that I thought the even Steven speech was pretty good. Uh, you know, where she's saying, you know, oh, if I did this, I did this, we'd almost be square. Um, 
I thought the speech she gave to her daughter is super fucking raw and badass and you did none of that the, the even so there are two lines that really fucking bug me in this movie and it's the even steven mm-hmm. stuff because it feels almost weirdly improvised um and the tricks are for kids line i hate both of those lines the and, tricks are for kids is is weird i I, I don't know how to explain that. Uh, I'm 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 guessing it's like gesturing at a like a shared uh, inside joke from yeah with like her the, name the, and like a commercial from the eighties. I yeah I don't I, fucking to know, me man. it's like to me it's 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 like a bit of world building. The like you know like I said these are like office workers these are coworkers and they had a shared identity that's not entirely unpleasant to either of them. You know there's sure. some rivalries they there each but other like still and all that. Yeah, and then and the fact that, like, you know, that they had some kind of, like, quote or ironic thing that they said on some mission that's kind of like a joke between the two. Um, I don't know. I like, I think that could be kind of vital to the scene that, that there is a few things. Uh, like, it implies an intimacy to these characters that without the line, I don't think you'd have. Maybe, but it's also a real world thing. And that's what takes me out of it. If If they could find a way to convey, hey, this is a thing that we have together but it's not based on some 80s com- day like Saturday morning cartoon commercial I yeah that would have been worked way better for me the the real world nature of it takes me out of it I also think I, I, I want to talk about the scene in terms of pacing because I feel like this scene is in a microcosm what Kill Bill is and that it's like this explosion of violence and then a device that slows things down and gets you to an equilibrium where the the characters can talk and emote. So like you know you're like mm-hmm. you're, your first like minute or two of adrenaline is like you don't even know what the stakes are. You don't know who you should be rooting for. Blah blah blah. Let you know separate the have them spar and then return to some sudden act of violence. Uh, and it works really well. Like I think that like without yeah. the stopping and pausing and then and the little girl coming home. First of all, it's also a, a trademark like Tarantino humor injection. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, right in the middle of this fight, where you expect it to be deadly odds, a school bus rolls up, and both women, without even talking about it, just instantly come to this understanding. They're like, "Oh, we got to put a pause on it." And uh, yeah, and I still remember being like jumping out of my seat when she fucking pulled that gun out of the cereal box. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, it's it comes out of nowhere. It's just such a great thing. scene. No, I I think conceptually that scene is amazing. Um, and it's very Tarantino and. The thing that undermines it for me is some what I consider bad dialogue. Uh, I I will say, yeah, the the action parts. This is a much better paced movie than some of his other work. I think Reservoir Dogs in particular is hard to get into because the pacing of that movie is very, very, very slow until you get Mm. to the explosive action, which only really happens like once or twice in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. this thing has it every, every chapter, every chapter is like you, like you said, it's, it's punctuated by violence and an explosion of action and then slower moments for us to, to, you know, decompress from that. I think it works so much better than for instance, a reservoir dogs. Yeah. Cause like right after you get the big knife fight, then you have this extended backstory with the sheriff coming to discover that she's not dead and her whole ordeal, uh, deal at the hospital. Um, I added, so out of this, like 
you know, I, I don't like this sequence so much um, because I just like, yeah, every, on rewatch, it just is so fucking gratuitous and in every single way. It's like sexually degrading. It's hum- human degrading. There's the weird Quentin Tarantino foot stuff um, like this. This, this, is, about like, this is two. The Daryl Hannah, the stuff? blood. Yeah, the blood spattered bride. But oh, oh, okay. one of the things one of the, one of the reasons I don't skip it is that like David Carradine puts on a hand acting clinic here <laughs> when he's on the phone with Ellie and that sword. Totally. Is it not the greatest fucking thing? Yeah, I, I so I read that Bruce Willis was considered for this role. Uh, I, I think it was. No, 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 it was. He was. He was the second. The first one is Warren Beatty. Yes, Warren Beatty turned it down. Bruce Willis was considered. I think Carradine was perfect for this, and I can see nobody else in this role but him at this point. I know that Quentin did a lot of like rewrites, and as he was doing this film, um, and I wonder how much they changed this role because it was David Carradine. Because yes, it it's impossible for me to think that Warren Beatty or even Bruce Willis. I think that that they have to make the character fundamentally different. But uh-huh. giving this quasi mystical kung fu spiritual everything you get from the legend it. continues, right? Yeah, and 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 also that like there's also like that's that's his stage, but also by this time in his career, he had built up this kind of reputation of being a wild man bastard, always in trouble yeah. with substance abuse and in and out. And they put that element. It's kind of a little bit of um, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Tony Stark. Like his real life alcohol, like the, like yeah. Bill's got a fucking mean streak and an excess streak, and that really pays off, especially in volume two. But it's incredible. Yeah. Like all you see is, I think, the back of his head and his fist in this movie, and it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of secrets they're keeping from the audience, um, which are thinly veiled. You know, um, the the reveal of David Carradine next movie is is big and then the name of the bride is something okay this is another thing i don't fucking understand about this movie and i never will uh i've seen all the justifications i've read so much about why censor the name of the bride okay i have it that's one of the things i didn't get it to why so why do they do that uh, so, because to me, it's just it's just to an add a level of like intrigue and mystery to the character itself. That like and, and she's like this is some kind of CIA film that they have they've scrubbed for incriminating human intel information. This feels to me like a thing, some weird thing we did in our Paul Giamatti one man manger special that nobody fucking got that we did it just to entertain ourselves. Like this is just Tarantino entertaining himself. So I've, so Tarantino is a big Jean-Luc Godard fan. Uh, Jean, Jean-Luc, it's not Jean-Luc. It can't be Jean-Paul. I don't know. Uh, anyway, Godard. Um, and apparently in one of his movies called made in USA, he did this with a bunch of different, Sounds and I, man, I tried to find clips of this happening. I wasn't going to watch the whole damn movie. I didn't have time. But apparently, the one of the main characters' names is always uh, overwhelmed in the soundtrack by something. And I don't know if it's in-world sounds or whatever, or if they just put like augas in there or something. I can't see Goodard doing that. But uh, 
this is almost certainly an homage to that because Tarantino has talked about how much he really respects and appreciates Godard's movies. So I'm assuming it's just that. That's the most plausible explanation I've heard. But I've also heard explanations about how this is an identity thing for the character uh, of the bride herself, where she is Black Mamba until the the wedding, um, until she quits, you know, the deadly assassin type oh. or whatever. And then she yeah. eventually earns this name through the course of the two films and when they stop bleeping it. I don't know, man. I, and maybe that works because this movie was filmed in its entirety. Part one, part two, all together kind of meant to be a single film. Um, and then it was broken up after the fact. So maybe that's what they're going for. But I, it's only barely plausible to me. Actually, I think that makes a lot of sense because it also I don't want to talk too much about volume two because six months from now we're going to do a do a uh, volume two probably retrospective of the whole series um but that makes a lot of sense in light of you know his big speech uh you know the whole superman clark kent dual identity you know like uh there's this like you, oh, you know, obviously this. you've only seen this movie once you don't remember it's a great line of dialogue where he talks about you know where superman's unique amongst the heroes like you know uh batman is bruce wayne he puts on a suit to become batman uh, Sp- you know, Spider-Man's Peter Parker. He puts on a suit and he becomes Spider-Man. Um, Superman, hit Clark Kent is his alter ego. He really is Superman. He's Kal-El from the planet fucking Krypton. He puts on the suit and the glasses to pretend to be no- a normal person. Um, and he analogized that to like, that's the thing that he hated about the, the bride, that she was pr- pretending you know, the, the her settling down of that boy and trying to be a mom is her pretending to be something she's not. Um, gotcha. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. And now, back with more Bald Move. So, yeah, if, if you put that, I, like I said, I was fine with it just being like an artistic flourish to making it seem like it's like a super secret agent type of you know uh like the name can't be spoken uh like the the superstition about pronouncing god's name you know i i think mm-hmm. that's cool alone but it kind of fits in with some of the themes that they develop in the second chapter so yeah but i it's one of the questions i had to, to ask you about why, why we're kind of adjacent to this scene um the Uma Thurman, you know, get the piggies wiggling. That's like obviously, obviously pitched wear down uh, Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish. And um, about as far from my wheelhouse as possible. I, I got two thoughts about this. I can't remember if I've ever actually, because I, I developed this the last time. I can't remember if I talked about this on OTC or something. But like the idea of like, okay, there are people out there that are in defeat, right? You know? Sure. Um, I'm into some things. I like I like I like breasts. I like asses. I like legs. Sure. I like a pretty smile. And and, and and if if I have for if I have a movie that titillates stuff like that, it's not uncommon that as a, as as a male I get titillated uh, when I'm and when I'm watching things. Do, do would I want someone that like hates breasts and thinks they're gross to film like a jiggling breast scene, or would you want someone that's like all about that shit? Oh, the latter, for sure. For sure. So it's like, to the extent that there's going to be some titillating foot content. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't whoa. you want a man? <laughs> don't you want a man that's going to get in there and do it right? 
Show the fucking skin texture on the individual knuckle toes. Don't you want to see the cuticles? Don't you want to get up in there and the toe cracks? I I don't know what. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. But 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 that's like me. (laughs) Godard didn't come to Quentin Tarantino and say, Tarantino, I have this, I have this script. And it's got this foot scene in it, and I want you to film it for me. Quentin Tarantino wrote this shit. It could have been her wiggling her finger or her nose, but it's but he's not into fingers. Fucking feet shit. I hate it. He's not into fingers it. or boobs, or but he's just into feet. Uh, I okay. know, man. So, so uh, let's put that conversation aside. Second, Ugh, is please. this the most egregious foot scene in the main Quentin Tarantino? I mean, we. I, I, I gotta leave out once upon a time. Was it once You're, upon a time you in Mexico? Leave it out? Why? Well, because he didn't write that. Like, yeah, he sucks some toes. <laughs> they just called him in to film like, it. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I'm, ta- I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, like, in his main line, <laughs> the Quentin Tarantino 10 film collection. Sure. Is this the most egregious? Because I think from my it's, watching yes. six months ago memory, Bridget Fonda in... Jackie Brown? Jackie Brown. God damn it. Yeah, I can't get this stuff straight. There's some pretty egregious foot stuff there. Is there? God, pretty, I don't remember that. Pretty egregious. Yeah. I yeah. block all foot stuff felt, out of my memory long term. I felt the dirtiest of all the re, the, the Tarantino, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I, felt I the don't like this. On the, I, the Bridget Fonda stuff. I, uh, look, I, I'm a fan of exploitation films. I think they can be fun. This you draw the this, line of foot exploitation. Foot exploitation is right out. But but here's the thing: that why this grosses me out. Okay, it's because. Look, when I see a, a exploitation film, I don't think that the people involved in the exploitation have these kinks themselves that they're actually like employing on screen and employing actresses to participate in their weird kinky foot fetish shit. I, I like Uma was apparently okay with it, but going out and writing a scene where I say. I re I'm really into breast. I'm really into breast and I want to write this breast scene and mm. I want them like front and center for a good three minutes. And I want to just focus in on every nook and cranny and crack and crevice. Sure. Not so many sure. of those on boobs. Uh, and then I'm going to go out and I'm going to hire an actress to do this. How informed was she? How much did we know about the proclivities of Tarantino in 2003? Did she know that she was basically making a Quentin Tarantino porn? Because that's what this is. It's Quentin Tarantino getting his rocks off and hiring an actress. Like, he he would do this in his fucking living room without the cameras rolling. Like, this shit is weird, <laughs> man. It's gross. I don't yeah, like no, it. Yeah, no, you're right. It is weird. I don't know if it's any weirder than any other, like, you know, uh, sex scene I've seen in an R-rated movie from the 80s and 90s. Uh, I, you know, that's what I'm comparing it to. Like, you know, sure. is, is it just is it just weird because I'm it's feet? There. Or is it weird that because we made an actress uncomfortable shooting a body part, you know, because... Well, that's I don't like, know if there was consent given. To, this is the problem with it, right? Because with, with breasts and ass and all the, the sexualized... Oh the, the mainstream sexualized parts of people, you can you can know what you're signing up for. You can be like, oh, this is a scene where I got to show my dick hole or something and, and be like, yeah, I guess people are going to get off on this. With feet, it's like... You don't know, right? This could just be a cool scene of someone willing themselves to move after being comatose for four years, or it could be Quentin Tarantino's living room porno. 
yeah. I don't know, man. I don't like it. Yeah, that's and it's weird. It's something that like I've started like kind of noticing like when there's a lot of, like I, I don't know it's like I feel like uh, I, I, I start noticing fixations on feet now but I don't know if it's like fair or if I'm just picking on the foot dudes well I mean with Tarantino specifically we, we kind of know right I mean so I think it's, let's, so let's, now let's, you let's, know let's talk about the Uma Thurman part of it because uh, we know of all the things that made her uncomfortable on Kill Bill this didn't make the top three uh, oh, is that true? What what was it? I don't know. I so the things that she the things that she cited as making herself uh, comfortable is the time that Quentin Tarantino spits on her because it's supposed to be Michael Madsen, but he stepped in and spit on her. Uh, he oh. also ch- choked. She he's the one that chokes her with the chain. Uh, for, and the with the was her Go Golgi. I Go-Go. forget what her name is. The yeah, Go Go yeah. Golgi or whatever. Anyway. Um, and then the thing that's the the real rupture. This is the thing that came yeah. out in like 2018, 2019 is the car wreck. Do you, are you familiar with this yeah. thing? I am. Yeah, where you pressured her into driving this car. Yeah, and like I've seen a recent interview where Uma Thurman said that you know, despite all these things, that she and Quentin Tarantino are still friends. Um, that that was like a breach of trust, but she'd still work with them again, given the right part. But I, man, the more I read about those details, where like Quentin Tarantino needed uh, a shot you know this is the establishing shot I think of Kill Bill volume 2 where she's driving down the road in that Volkswagen she's talking about killing killing Bill and he wanted to get a shot of her driving down this kind of like you know dirt tropical road and you know her stunt driver wasn't available and she's like I don't feel comfortable doing this Quentin he's like ah it's a straight shot Uh, I've driven it myself uh, it's not a big problem. Uh, this is just driving. You got a driver's license, and she wasn't comfortable. But she's but she also didn't want to let Quentin down, so she gets behind the wheel, and then she gets in a wreck. Um, the thing is, it's kind of insane when you look at it that like Quentin Tarantino, it like did test drive, the, but like in between him doing that, he reversed the course. So instead of going driving from east to west or driving from west oh. to east, if you've driven on any kind of like challenging road, there's definitely. One section is worse, and I guess this one ended in an S curve that you wouldn't have gotten to in the same distance going the other way, and that's where she lost. The other thing is, apparently, this was like a tricked-out car. Its transmission was weird. Its driver's oh, seat wasn't bolted down. Uh, and I'm thinking, like, aside from, like, the maniacal director aspect of it, I'm thinking, like, if you and I were doing some kind of con appearance and, like, you, they wanted to get you in some kind of suspension Peter Pan rig, and you're like, I don't know, Aaron, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, and I'm, like, kind of bullying into it, and you get severely hurt, I don't know how I ever get over that. Like, yeah. I'm actually kind of impressed that Quentin Tarantino as a person you know, like, did that and then didn't, like, retire from filmmaking immediately. Like that. Oh, impressed. That's partic- maybe not the that's, word I would use, but <laughs> okay, not impressed. I, I, I like, just like it's a pretty heinous Surprising. thing to do to your friend. Yeah, you would think so. Like they had worked together for years. They came up with this character together. Like Uma was all fucking in. Ah, ah, it just makes it sick. Um, like I said, she seems like yeah. she's forgiven him. Uh, and and the other thing is, it's not even that that happened. But, like, his attitude after where she's like, you know, I would like to get this footage from Miramax so I can maybe sue the company. And he and he and Miramax Stonewalter is like, we'll only give you the footage if you agree not to sue us. And Quentin's kind of like, well, I don't know. Well, what do you want me to do? I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm just a director. Man, you're Quentin fucking Tarantino. 
Yeah. You you couldn't. You just made Kill the, Bill. Well, and, and if not, then like as you build more and more clout, you can't go to bat against the. It just seems, and he, even he says like he's personally ashamed. Uh, that's his biggest regret. His second biggest regret is the fact that he knew about two separate Harvey Weinstein a- uh, accusations, and he handled that as like wow. a personal affair. Where he's like, "Well, you need to apologize to the actress," and then he considered it closed. Both of those things, like Jesus, how do you not stay awake at night? Uh, and thank God Uma Thurman didn't, but I guess didn't get permanently. Well, no, she is permanently. She injured. had. Yeah, I guess she her, had some injuries. Her neck and her knees are have never been the same. Yeah. Um, and she's like, she was in the prime of her life, just had two children, and you fuck. I just, it's just like that. Just seems reprehensible to me over a fucking movie. Anyway. Yeah. No, that, that's what I mean, man. It's like there's some aspects of. I mean, and this happens a lot of the times. Uh, not a lot. This happens from time I think to time it, I, with directors where they go overboard yeah. with this stuff. And it does seem like it's like it, it's even worse when you have that personal relationship because it's something that you can, you know, like if you're just working for a director, it's like, fuck you. I want this. I want I want, I want someone to sign off on this. But if it's like, yeah, you know, it's me and you, Uma, and and doing the bride and I, it's. Yeah. Uh, um. This, so that's a what lot do you of think negativity. about the Anna? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just like it, I think it's appropriate. Like, yeah, if I, I Uma don't think Thurman I ever... dies making this film, I don't think I think Quint, like the other thing is like I don't know. Like, I guess he's taken responsibility lately. It's it, if he did the thing and then like fully supported her trying to get justice for the event, that'd be one thing. But to find that he kind of towed the line for yeah, so long yeah. until essentially Harvey Weinstein was like radioactive and then he's finally... That just doesn't sit well with me. And like, yeah, I just think that, you know, if she had died in that accident, which she easily could have done 40 mile an hour hitting a tree, I don't know if Quentin Tarantino ever works again. Like, that's approaching criminal negligence. But, you know... Yeah, no, I mean, it's... it's he didn't go to jail and, this and she says he's okay. with like. The, the Alec Baldwin stuff, right? With the mishap with the gun. Uh, yes. Dis- that's That seems a little less egregious in my mind because nobody was really bullied into it. It was perhaps an honest mistake or, you know, so, so somebody somebody's lapse in uh, attention that, that caused it. Yeah. So it's not as gross, but it's still awful. Yeah. Um. I, the other thing is like I've never liked the anime sequence. I think it's visually stunning. Oh um, yeah, yeah. It's made by the same people that did uh, Neon Genesis, Evangelion, Evangelion, and uh, what was the other one that they did? I remember there's another big one. I know the production uh, company it, did Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell. That was the other big one. And it is, it's visually stunning, but it's like there's a line in Roger Ebert's review. It's said that like the reason it's an anime is because if you did the subject material live action, it would be NC-17. You'd have to play it in like gutter theaters and and, and, and on the deuce. And it is like, God damn it. The line of like, lucky for her, he was a pedophile. And this (laughs) 11-year-old girl who's killing a dude that's fuck. It's... It's pretty fucking rough. Um, and again, mm-hmm. just to give you a sick backstory so that I don't know. Uh, I, I think of like, again, you make this movie with and you substitute with men. I'm thinking of like, you know, Tango and Cash. And both of those dudes get like violently raped as children or something to start it wow. off with. Like now we can properly. It just yeah, it's just it just never would happen. It'd be ridiculous. Um, 
but I, I fucking, I've never liked it. I've always, I remember like being very squeamish watching this in the theater and it's still just like, ugh. Um, yeah, I mean, it, so, so it serves, I think, a necessary purpose in the film. Not that you couldn't have done it another way, um, a less, you know, violent or gory or icky way, but like, you need to know something about Ornishi because if you don't, she's she's not scary. She's not intimidating. And I think because I know she's being... this master assassin, I know that mm. I know what the bride is going up against in that scene. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that you could have gone because I, I there's uh, her father being killed by a yakuza member and her mother too. Like that's mm-hmm. fine. Like her like working her way up and like a Leon the professional. Speaking of problematic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, underage women protagonist. Um, you, I think you could do all that without, you know, the whole like. Luckily for her, he was a pedophile. Like Absolutely. that's a fucking wild line. Um, yeah, or or without the fountains of blood. I mean, yeah, you could absolutely do that stuff more reserved. Um, but but well, fountains of blood don't bother me. That's like it's <laughs> like that's par for well, the course. You're an of American, film, you know? of course. Right, right, right. No, pedo- <laughs> yeah, gallons of blood don't bother me as much as pedophilia. I'll I'll take that. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll stand say, by I'll, that. I think that stands. Uh, but the other thing it does is it it, it shows you know beyond just being a member of the Vi- the deadly viper assassin squad, it also connects these characters personally between Oren mm. and and the bride um, because they both have that a very similar backstory, right? Her father, she, they both have a revenge backstory where something was valuable to them, personally valuable was taken. And they went on a revenge mission uh, to reclaim some autonomy over their lives. Mm-hmm. So oh, I, and that's I think it's like one of the from peak, that perspective. But that's also one of the kind of ironic engines that powers the film is the idea that like the bride is kind of hypocritical in that, you know, she shows up to Vivica Fox's house who did the same thing that she did four years ago. She like, this is a sick lifestyle. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to settle down with a nice man and have some nice kids and like eschew this. And the bride shows up and kills her and then Mm -hmm. tells her daughter essentially. Yeah. You can do the, you can do the, the bride thing to me later on. Like, yeah, yeah. She's no morally, she's not morally superior to any of these people. And you, like you said, like, this is like you could easily see Lucy Lee's Lucy Lou's story, Oren's story, um, you know, like like the bride doing this three or four years after the end of the Kill Bill saga, and she's established herself with her daughter in some kind of criminal underworld, blah blah blah, and then some bastard comes and kill. It's like that. That mm-hmm. I think that's uh, super interesting that they set up these um, dichotomies and these hypocrisies, and it's not really examined, but I think it is really interesting. You know, especially when you're going through multiple watches of this, it's like, yeah, the bride is killing people for living by a code that she herself lives by. Yeah, no, it's it's I, I appreciate all those like cyclical and sort of circular things that they've got going on here. Um, and, I, and I almost wish we had waited until volume two to talk about this because I don't remember volume two well enough to say if any of that stuff is really brought to fruition by the end but 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 it's definitely there and, and it had to yeah, be a I think conscious thought uh, we're kind of moving on to my favorite part of the movie which is the man from Okinawa 
I think this yes. might be my favorite chapter in the entire sequence because it it features one of my favorite hooks for a scene, which is one character oblivious to the danger or the predicament that they're stepping into and the other character setting the trap uh, or setting the hook. And like okay. Uma Thurman at this point in the movie coming in pretending to be this ditzy blonde tourist and Sonny Chiba's character you know who's this retired swordsman master swords craftsman and he's just like hamming it up he's just like literally playing a character mm-hmm. like oh warm sake very good like he's mm-hmm. just you know they're both playing this ridiculous part but only one of them is in on the joke and then when she lowers the boob and she reveals that she's looking for him like the way all that energy changes uh the whole thing like you've got these guys like you know living like they're an old married couple they're just bickering and fighting and then turns like yeah. as soon as like that just like a serious flip the switch i i just i just love it and the dialogue is just so fucking rugged and rough in this scene ah yeah i do too this this is the best of tarantino's style of writing in my opinion this this like circuitous we're sort of gonna get to the point eventually mm-hmm. but but he's laying a trap here that he's not often laying in his dialogue scenes that pays off extremely well in my opinion with with the reveal mm-hmm. that yes she speaks great japanese and she's here specifically to talk to you because of your history and, and i get a lot of like i don't know if this is a head canon or if this is like supposed to be implied but i, I get a lot of feelings that this resentful underling of his who's supposed to serve the hot socket right the guy that feels that he is not being used to his full potential uh he has that resentment because this old dude retired like he was looking forward to becoming a master sword maker just like Hattori Hanzo and so he hitched his star to this guy's wagon and then the dude just stopped doing what he was doing and started making sushi and forcing him to do you know, the thankless work he'd be doing, but working toward the goal of becoming a master swordsman in service of this restaurant that gets no visitors. But he can't leave because he's what you're going to like, you know, you're going to stop being the prince of a master swordsman. Right. Maybe know? he's holding out hope. Maybe it's just an, a respect and honor kind of like thing. An aura but like thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So I, I might be building that all up in my head, but I felt the, the way the tone shifts, like you said, I felt that that thing where now he's got a purpose, right? He's the underling of this master swordsman who's working again and, and he's holding whatever the, the sheath is called here uh, for the samurai sword with great respect and with, you know, all Mm. this ritual and he's really into it now. Yeah. And like, I just like, I mean, it's way over the top, but like the way the swords ring, like they're like some kind yeah. of crystal harmonic as soon as like an inch of the steel is and just that is just, it's it's just really cool uh as a and it's also just like strangely elevated um like some of the dialogue well, it's, in it's, here it's that he, sword porn i i mean <laughs> look this is the foot fetish scene except with a different subject true, matter true and the like the the line if on your journey you should encounter god god will be cut uh-huh. Fucking Dude. oh god, it's so good. I I say that all the time. I say if if on your journey you should encounter, 
uh you know like or like if i'm um i don't know like i, I do this like at last like if i'm making a pancakes like i say this without <laughs> ego this is my finest pancake if on your journey you should encounter god god will be fed that's the joke i always like whatever i'm serving to jack or cecily or if i've made some kind of like stupid contraption i always say that and then substitute the verb to be whatever you know this is my Dude, finest th- microblade grater. Uh, <laughs> no, there are some uh, fucking lines in this movie. Lines that ring through the the history of Hollywood in my mind. Like that that thing she says, the the bride says when she jumps up on the railing and she's standing above all these bodies and she tells everyone in the room, uh, you can go, but leave the limbs you've lost. They belong to yeah. me. Is like, oh, holy shit, that's good. And it's all delivered in Japanese, um, mm-hmm. and the way that she's intoned, it just it's so good. And the, the this going back and to the Bill's Okinawa speech scene early on is amazing as well. The, the this is me at my most masochistic. That stuff oh is yeah, amazing too. all that and and we will not you know we will not diminish ourselves or demean ourselves. I, uh, the the other thing about the scene is that it also tells us something about Bill that like yeah Bill's infamous like this this famous sword guy from Okinawa it's Bill's former student and he I got always got the idea that like whatever Bill did sickened him enough to hang up his sword and sword making ability and that the only thing he would come out of retirement is to forge a, bill, a sword that can kill Bill. And I, it's like, and they don't yeah. ever say that, but like this scene not only makes, it increases the bride's mystique because now she has like a holy weapon on this like divine crusade for justice because they're mentioning Lord Buddha and God and everything else about like, you know, who's getting, um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just, it is. It just. It, it adds to Bill's mystique, especially the fact that you don't see him throughout this whole movie too. He's like Doctor Claw. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they never say yeah, his I name just... in this scene. They do write it on the window, but but that's after she has already told him without telling him who this is. Yeah, and there's even just like there's. It tells us some about the bride. The fact that like uh, he inscribed Bill's name and is paying the glass and is like this is where you'll sleep for the month that I. And she first thing she does is go and erase his name because mm-hmm. she'll be damned. If she's going to sleep under the roof, that has got this guy's name on it. That's and the only place she wants his name is on that list, right? Yeah. Uh, and like you know, there's the 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 whole rest of the movie is the showdown at the House of Blue Leaves, but is it amazing, is yeah. extremely well paced. Uh, I cannot get over how well paced this is. Like. They just build. There's so many things that build tension. Like there's this leisurely, this model 747 uh, that's flying over a model Tokyo, and it's intercut with the crazy eight under sport bikes with their fucking sword mounts. They all look insane. There's that iconic entry uh, with the girl rock band in the background, the Charlie Brown. It's just, it's just amazing. And then there's like uh, her doing this like uh, super spy routine where she's at the bar and she's overhearing this and she's uh, uh, staking out uh, Oren's hideout and sneaking up in the rafters and she's finding Sophie in the bathroom before she goes her red berserk alarm it, it like I said you just you 
they keep on setting up the fact that like Oren's is badass and she's got 88 assassins and she's got this chief bodyguard and she's got this insane teenager that's got this and it just like you just you're just hungry for the confrontation and then when yeah. it when it starts it I mean this is like a 10 minute long fight scene uh-huh. that then goes into another 5 minute long much more stated reserve fight scene and it's incredible we'll be right back with more bald move after this brief pause And now, back with more Bald Move. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a it's a blueprint for heightening action to to a climax, right? Um, yeah, you start small, and you as you are encountering larger and larger threats, you're also using those to build the mystique of the main character and the the, the danger level of the main character. Um, yeah, I see it everywhere now. Do you have any favorite? I thought we could like talk about the favorite like segments of this fight. Uh, I'll say so that I like the, the way opening, that this is, uh-huh. the, 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 the opening where she takes off Sophie's arm. I remember that in the theater, just like staggered <laughs> at how much blood can spray out of a human being. Like it's unrealistic. It's She's got like six bodies worth of blood on the floor by the time you know she lives. But like God, yeah, yeah, yeah. it is it. It is a way to kick off a fight. <laughs> yeah, it, it says. Buckle up, motherfuckers, because yeah. this is just the this is just the appetizer for what I'm about to do. Uh, I, I I really love the fight with Gogo. Boy, that what a fight! Chain, this is so interesting. Okay, continue. It, so so I mostly love this because of the way it's filmed. It's filmed in this like. Very, very like low budget indie amateur kind of way, and this was intentional. Tarantino was like, yes. "Yeah, we could do all this technical stuff with effects and whatnot. We could do the Matrix, mm-hmm. but but I want you to get creative and show me what you can do without any of that shit." Mm-hmm. And I think it's better for it. I I really love you know it just evokes that era of of Asian cinema that he is trying to evoke. It's it's one of the things that defines it in my opinion these these slam zooms right these these uh whip pans and like close-ups on on different parts of of a weapon and just like the way it moves feels entirely different from the way a modern filmed action movie would yeah you start in the in the beginning of the film he's got the shaw scope logo and that was like a hallmark for <laughs> their, those films those exact you know those camera yeah. moves and whatnot but I got to say, that's one of the reasons I don't like I don't like huh. the sequence. I thought that, like, I appreciate the homage because like these um, really weird kind of chain bladed weapons. You know, it's it's kind of a staple for these kung fu movies. You know, the, there's a bad mm-hmm. guy. It's got like a monk, an iron claw or totally. some kind of weird ass thing. I just think Gogo herself is just it's another I don't know. Um I just, I don't like the the design. I don't like the schoolgirl thing. I don't like the. It, it, it's just yeah. I, it, I I didn't think the fight flowed very well. Um, but it, like I said, it it works as an homage. It's just like the thing that I'm kind of like I find tedious uh, on rewatching. Uh, gotcha. Okay. I, I yeah I hate the dude she stabs and his like fucked up teeth. Uh, <laughs> it's just yeah. It's just uh, it's just it's it's all it's all ugly. Don't like it. Um, all right. 
but that's the only thing everything else is like this is just i think she looks so incredible there's like undeniable panache that she's showing throughout this whole fight um you know i like the constantly ex- escalating like there's like there's three distinct phases of this fight that would be a complete fight in another movie mm-hmm. where like you know you you got the appetizer crazy 88 where she fights like i don't know like a third of them then you got the go-go fight and then you got them showing up with the rest of the 88 and that's when they switch to black and white and things get really fucking ridiculous but but you, yeah, you mentioned her standing on the staircase moment not only is that speech amazing but the battlefield she's surveying mm-hmm. where there's just like all these corpses and people moaning without arms and they're like you know after she says take your lives but leave your limbs you see them all trying to like stumble and crawl and pull themselves all out of the door like they're stacking up on top of each other trying to get out of that long hallway out the door it's amazing yeah I, I love I, the crazy 88 sequence or part of this sequence is probably my favorite just because it's so over the top and and I wish and that it was in color I really do I want to see that version where it is in color because like I, I'm i not offended by over the top intense core I love it I think it's hilarious and this scene uh-huh. is so good so hilarious and it could be even better if it were in color yeah I do wonder because like I, that's my favorite sequence too and I do think part of what makes it is that where it would get visually boring he mixes it up constantly he goes to he plucks out the eye goes to black and white uh then mm-hmm. he does like after you're saturated in that he goes he does the uh you know the one-on-one uh, yeah the staircase fight with uh, gordon Liu. uh ah, yeah yeah they i they even like i think i love it when she like cuts down all the 88 and she's just down the, your background where she's facing that little kid and he's like with his short stake and she like cuts it down and spanks his spanks ass him. go home to your mother uh, <laughs> it, this, this is what you get for fucking around with yakuza's it's uh-huh. it's like it's another good pacing because like you know you needed a kind of a good laugh after all that um, and, and to prepare and you for the next badass. battle that you know is coming right like against Oren. yeah yeah, and I like I said, I love the stunts, the the running up the rails that looks so good. They're them fighting on the rail, it's so great. Um, the shadow box fighting, like that that intense blue, it's just it's just a visual treat. And I just like remember watching that, thinking I've never, I've literally never seen a movie like this before. Um, yeah, this is not my preferred style of martial art movie. I'm not into like the like like I said earlier, the wire foo stuff typically but as an homage Mm. this works this works super well like i'd much rather see jackie chan do shit that i know could probably kill him or severely injure him or or is just like athletically impossible in my mind like jumping through shit and off shit and over shit and i would much rather see that and know that oh they did something that's real here than see something incredibly visually impressive but know that it was done with wires and, and cinema magic but this works super well because it oh, is an homage yeah because uh, Wu Peng did a lot of um, Jackie Chan's there's a fair amount of wire foo and like drunken master um, I mean not like the matrix sure, style sure. but like yeah yeah no, um, not like crouching tiger style that's where that's the line where that's a little over because I remember being super excited for crouching tiger and when it got there it's like wow this is this is a lot of why I don't know if I buy these guys dancing on these treetops <laughs> it's a cool concept you yeah. just can't quite sell it I don't think but uh yeah, um, they sell most of this stuff. They they do a lot of the wire food stuff with um that chain ball fight with Gogo, uh, and a lot with the one on one with 
I don't know, whoever the, the bald crazy eight crazy eighty eight guy in the mask is. Um Yeah. When they're dancing on the railing. I thought that stuff was pretty cool as an homage. Yeah. And it, it's grounded enough that it didn't didn't pull me out of the movie. Um yeah. they do they get a little bit a little kookier with Pai Mei in the second episode, but like he's intentionally a legendary character, so it doesn't you know, when he's like standing on the tip of her sword, it doesn't look convincing, but also, you know, he's kind of like a Tom Bombadil character that you, I don't think he, he like breaks the laws of physics. So um, yeah. then you shift into you downshift into the Lucy Lou fight with Oren. Mm-hmm. And I just that man, this is, you know, uh, this is very tropey. If you're familiar with Asian stereotypes and, and filming locations and like samurai stuff and yeah, just like fight out outside of a tea house in a snow filled garden by the pool at the fountain. It's just and mm-hmm. it, the way it's shot, like I love how Oren starts off with so much contempt that she has for the bride and her abilities and that one scene where the bride first draws blood and she's standing there and you hear the 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 fountain feature gushing water at the same time there's blood pulsing out of down her crisp white sock and into the crisp white snow and she apologizes for her it's just so fucking samurai yeah it's it's so kurosawa it's kind of the thing i love about all these fight scenes um they they feel like a samurai style of fighting uh you know where each blow matters it's not mm-hmm. i'm it's not death by a thousand cuts it's death by one fucking slash and you're mm-hmm. done uh and that slash is going to happen kind of in the blink of an eye and you're not even going to be sure who took the hit until you yeah. step back and take a look at it um that that to me felt really good and especially in this last fight this is that to a t these are masters. It's, it's all about spacing and, you know, footing. Position, and yeah. Technique. And, yeah, it's all about... It's, it's, but not and, in, like, a fencing way, right? In, like, a... I have no. a blade that if it hits you, it's going to do massive damage. Yeah, 100%. And uh, it's 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 great. Uh, I think that the, there's that scene, like I said, after the bride draws blood on her where there's just this insanely close study of the two women's faces and like the, the po- poise that Lucy Liu shows. Um, I don't know. I've never like, I it's like the thing is like, she's always playing these very strong characters. I don't think I've ever seen her in a situation like that, where she's just realizes she's completely overmatched and she's about to die. And like the look on her face where she's just like completely misjudged the situation is just, it's incredible. Um, and there are a couple of ways that the wiggling piggies scene comes back in here. Uh, you, you got you got some weird foot stuff going on here with Oren, where she takes off her shoes, and Tarantino focuses very closely on that. But I can, I kind of forgive it. It feels, it feels right for that character. Um, mm-hmm. And then also the willpower that the bride shows, um, the the thing that's animating her throughout this entire film she falls back on once again you know first it was to get her piggies wiggling now it's to get back up after getting slashed and then and she feels invincible because of it right yeah uh 100% and that's like that that cat she takes where the blood's just gushing out of her back is just nasty and and the other thing is like the the just the indomitableness of the bride in this sequence yes. 
you know, the fact that she's fought through, I don't think it's literally 88 people, but it damn near feels like it. And she's bruised and she's bloody and she's covered in blood and she's exhausted. And, you know, now she has to fight Oren, who we've already seen is like, you know, this, this big badass. You know, it's like she didn't have to do this for mm-hmm. Vivica Fox. <laughs> you know, she'd yeah. have to fight through like 73 elite bus drivers to get to her, her <laughs> right? You know, all with, you know, weapons more impressive than the last. But, uh-huh. um, and, and, and it's great. Oren points it out, right? I hope you've saved your energy. Uh, otherwise, you won't last five minutes. And, and it's, it's not really energy that's, I, I feel like she's mistaken her, right? It's not energy that's animating the bride, it's will. Mm. Um, I love dropping Sophie off at the hospital. That always makes me laugh that she just like <laughs> throws her down this hill and she she rolls into a hospital emergency room parking lot. It's just this I think it's mm-hmm. just hilarious. And the whole speech she gives when she's setting uh Sophie go, where she's like, you know, um, I'm gonna interrogate you now, and Sophie's like, fuck you, I'm not telling you anything. He's like, yeah, but I'm gonna still ask my questions. And if I don't like my answers, I'm gonna start cutting off things, and they will be things, or you will miss. Uh huh. So fucking good. And then the whole speech of I want Bill to know this, I want Bill to know that, I want Bill, and I want Bill to know, I want him to know. It's it's yeah. just so good, and she nails it. She nails the cadence of it. Absolutely, and this dialogue is super strong. Um, can we talk about the style of? Of really, I mean, it's Tarantino's signature style is to tell things out of order um, for for some kind of dramatic impact. And I think it works extremely well in this final scene where we're kind of intercutting between Sophie telling Bill what the bride wanted her to tell him and her, the bride telling Sophie what she wants Bill to hear. I, I think that works really well in that scene. Um, but they're doing this throughout the whole movie. I mean, we start with number two on the list. Oren Ishii is number one on the list. Uh, we start with Vivica Fox, uh, something green. I, I don't remember her full name. Mm-hmm. So, some snake name that she's got. California mountain corn snake. snake. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a couple of weird ones. There's a couple of weird, weird. ones. I, honestly, they're all kind of weird. Yeah, Black Mamba, weird, that yeah. makes sense. And then it just gets weird. But but I think, I, I think all that out of order storytelling works, like serves the film really well. I think mm. because of the challenge that each of the and, and you could have right he could have made Oren number two on the list and made mm-hmm. Vivica Fox the the number one and then it would have all been in chronological order but th- there's something about like especially with the pussy wagon seeing that she has this pussy wagon before you have any idea why she would have it mm-hmm, is something that's mm-hmm. like laugh out loud hilarious and in retrospect is kind of like oh shit okay no that's way more fucked up than any way I thought she would have had this and and it's not hers and it's it's like unpleasant for her to even be driving it I mm-hmm. I don't know it, there's something dramatically that works really well in those scenes because I, I get a laugh and then I'm like oh I shouldn't have laughed at that that's fucked up <laughs> right yeah, that's the other thing. As I when I was going through my Quentin Tarantino rewatch, is that he does that through the majority of his films, tells things out of sequence with these chapter totally. headings, and they almost always do something like that. They improve your understanding or change your opinion on a character, or uh-huh. 
you know, make a, an, an ironic twist that pays off later. Um, and you compare that to like, you know, so many people that ape that style. Like this was something that like every fucking season, some goddamn director that was fresh off the set of Timon and Pumbaa came on and like, I'm going to tell an <laughs> origin story. I don't. And just like so often, just dead. it's so often yeah. just stupid. It's so often like to hide a, a just a terrible idea. Whereas this is just like, if anything, too much creativity and and filmmaking, and yet it's still. I agree. One of the things I, I, I want to talk about is the whole bloody affair is the cut that you're referring to. That's like it's Quentin Tarantino's exclusive. He showed it at a couple film festivals and a few private screenings. It's the recut film that was the original volume one and volume two all together with some mm-hmm. scenes deleted that were just, you know, like you don't need the 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 bride driving and saying she's going to kill Bill in the middle of the movie. Right. You just get rid of that. You get rid of like the yeah. previews for the. And I guess, uh, you know, there's no black and white sequences. Um, there's some extended violence in the anime cut and some other. But it's it's essentially just the two movies smushed together with a couple of scenes massaged. I, I'm curious how that flows together because in my mind, yeah, I understand that he was forced to kind of cut this down pretty early on in this shooting schedule, though. I think this is something that Weinstein suggested, you know, just in terms of like, you know, Quentin make a lot more money if theaters can show this uh, five times, six times a day instead of three times, and then we can do it twice instead of once. Mm-hmm. I do wonder how it flows together, because in my mind, Volume 1 and Volume 2 are very different films. Volume 1 yeah. is the sizzle, Volume 2 is the steak. And mm-hmm. I wonder what the experience of watching this adrenaline-fueled crazy thing, and then the other, much more slower absorbing part of the movie. And yeah. Why isn't it available on fucking Blu-ray? Like, what is Quentin as deal a whole, with this? As a combined thing, yeah. I, yeah, why can't you get know, the whole man. bloody affair? I couldn't tell you. It seems like a natural thing to do. It seems like that's just a way you make money. <laughs> I wonder if his mind that it's not yet complete. Like, yeah, like it's like fine to show his friends and some, you know, critical darling people and this, that, the film festivals, but if he ever put it to Blu-ray, he would want to make sure that he did X, Y, and Z. Because otherwise, I just don't... Maybe. I mean, or it might just be him being an auteur weirdo, you know, like this is part of his mystique, right? Yeah. But um, I would love to... I would love to see it. Yeah. Um, I, I did read that it was somewhere during the filming of this, not until they kind of got toward the end or maybe the writing of it. Um, not till they got toward the end of it that Tarantino realized, Oh, the bride's daughter should still be alive. Yeah. And it's so, a big thing. I feel like the movie has been building to that, but it feels so perfect. Yeah. It feels like he was writing this thing. Like one, it's like they're laying tracks, you know, trains going down and he's just laying enough track to keep up with the train. Uh, because mm-hmm. this film also, did you know it was shot in sequence? I heard, yeah. What an insane thing to do with this film in particular. With all the locations, with all the stars that you got to coordinate. You're just going to shoot this in the order that the film is... Re- and I know they can't literally mean that. There's a couple of things that they had to have like doubled up and for Volume 1 and Volume 2. Um, but like... It, it it seems an insane way to tell the movie, especially since he is like changing big things like the daughter being alive. That's a huge change for volume two. If, if, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, 
it, it feels like I wonder if he didn't want to do it in sequence because he wanted to give himself that runway to make big changes, to discover the character, to kind of workshop it. Maybe. Because, like, I've, yeah, it just seems like, especially since this movie's kind of sort of out of order anyway, like, the fact that you'd shoot it in sequence just, and if you don't know, that means most films are done, like, out of, you know, you, you might shoot the last scene of the movie the first thing because that's when all the actors are available and you got the locations, all this stuff. Most things are not shot shot in, in the same order, but this one, this mm-hmm. one was. Um, I don't know if that yeah. gives the mm-hmm. actors better performances, especially when you're breaking up your performances with like, okay, we're going to take three weeks off and we're just going to shoot the tea house scene now. Uh, but I don't know. I thought it was crazy yeah. when I read that. Yeah, that's wild. Maybe that's uh, Tarantino at his most masochistic. A hundred percent. Oh, that line kills me. I don't know. Are you familiar with the way that David Carradine died? Yes, I am. Okay. I'll say there's, no more, there... but isn't there oh. a certain level of like irony? Or not, not irony, but just like, oh, that's that's rough. I mean, the man, he's a wild. The man's a wild man. What, what? Yes. what can you say? He is. He died like he lived, doing something fucking crazy. <laughs> I I will argue that that was not, in fact, Bill at his most masochistic. Um, what else do we have to say uh, on that note? I said uh, we we will, I know we'll be back in six months to talk about Volume Two, and I kind of want to do mm-hmm. more of like talk about which one we like better, one or two. Um, and I'm very curious about your perspective since you're, you know, you don't, you don't have as much uh, history at this film as I do. Uh, no, I've only seen these once each. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited too. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. We'll be back in six months to talk about it next anniversary. Uh, I was kind of holding out hope as we got, cause we've had this on our calendar for a while. I was kind of hoping out, holding out hope that like, as we got closer to the 20 year mark, that Quentin Tarantino would announce the whole bloody affair. Like, yeah. it's like, oh, that'd be sweet if we could get that and watch it and for the part two retrospective. But oh, I don't know. Maybe. No, still no word. Still no word. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there is, like I said, I, we're not at quite the 20th anniversary mark just yet. That's in a, in like a week and a couple of days. So maybe he'll announce it on, but we'll see. Uh, that's going to do it with this Bald Move Prestige movie. Hope you've enjoyed our coverage of Kill Bill Volume 1. Again, we'll be back six months for Volume 2. we got a whole bunch of other prestige stuff that's coming down the pike. Uh, getting very close to Fargo. Uh, True Detective in the new season in terms of prestige. we got a couple of movies. I know we've got Clockwork Orange. We're trying to get on the schedule, but we keep keep running into other prestige stuff. Um, but uh, we appreciate your listenership. We'll be back with another prestige movie or TV series before you know it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.